Well, as we're talking about unity, we all know getting along can be tough because not only do we do things that are selfish and morally questionable and not great sometimes, there's also all of those little personality quirks that we all have that drive other people crazy. Like you have certain things that people do that drive you nuts, okay? Just for an example, how many of you hate the sound of someone else chewing? There's a few. It's not an uncommon thing, right? And you can't necessarily say that they're doing anything wrong, per se, but when you're sitting next to somebody and they're chewing loudly and you can hear their jaw crunching together that food, you're sitting there thinking, boy, there's got to be a special place in hell for people who sound like that when they eat. Like, you can't help yourself. That's just what you think. Um, one thing about my personality is I, I want everybody to just be okay. Okay, I don't love conflict. I want you to be okay with me. I want to be okay with you. I want you to be okay with each other, right? But at the same time, I have a few of these things as well that when I see them, when I encounter them, they immediately make me angry. Uh, one weird thing about becoming a dad that no one warns you about is you are immediately given a sixth sense to know when a door is left open while the air conditioner is on. I don't know what it is. I can just tell. I can hear the air conditioner with one ear, and I'm like, the door's open. Bugs are getting in. We're cooling the neighborhood. Like, I just know. And it makes me so angry. And my initial thought is, what kind of monster would leave a door open? That person, I'm never going to even talk to them again. Most of the time, it's my kids, so that's not an option. But if it's an adult, I am thinking about that. Um, another thing that drives me nuts is how other people drive. I don't know if you notice this. I'm the only good driver in the world. And I, I'm guessing some of you think the same thing, that you think you're the only good driver in the world. I tend to drive slow. And some of you are like, I know I've been stuck behind you a time or two. I tend to drive slow um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I, I just think driving recklessly and fast is kind of dangerous. The second thing is I'm really cheap and I don't want to pay for tickets. So it's kind of both of those working very well. I do hover near the speed limit. I will go above the speed limit a little bit, okay? I'm rarely going just the speed limit. Um, but that's kind of where I sit, close to the speed limit, you know? But when someone comes up and starts riding my bumper, I can almost feel the salvation leaving my body. <laughs> it just, I mean, I just can't stand it, and it makes me more mad if I've got my, all my kids in the car, because I'm thinking, one thing comes out in front of me, and you crash into the back of me. Often what I'll do is when someone gets up behind me, I just let off the gas, and I just coast. I don't care if there's cars coming, and you could pass me or not. I just coast, which is the most loving and holy thing I know a pastor can do in that particular <laughs> moment, but that's what I feel. And then when there's times when I'm by myself and somebody does it, then I'm almost thinking, I hope a squirrel does run out in front of me. Oh, I just want to tap the gas and just scare the life out of you for a second. Or tap the brakes, excuse me. Um, and while I'm on a run, let me go ahead and add to the list of things that drives me crazy is to people who talk on speakerphone in public. You're, yeah. Now, here's the thing. If you have a legitimate issue in your heart of hearing and this works best for you, absolutely fine. I just don't think that's the majority of people. Um, I just think people like talking on their phone like this, and so they walk around at the store, at the restaurant, screaming at their phone. 
Because we all do this. You don't know this because you're doing it when you're on the phone. But anytime someone calls you, you immediately raise the volume of your voice so that they can hear you through this magic of technology. And that's fine and all. I just don't want to hear about your mom's doctor's appointment while I'm enjoying the delicious Chick-fil-A that I'm probably eating somewhere. I just don't want to deal with that. I don't want to hear what she had to get drained or any of that nonsense while I'm on the phone. Okay? So those are a few of mine. You have yours. Um, in fact, if you, for those of you watching online, leave something in the comments. Let us know what's your pet peeve that someone uh, tends to do. Um, keep it nice, though. Don't make it a pointed shot at anyone specific. Um, but that stuff, again, that stuff makes it hard for us to get along because there's things that people do that just grates against your personality, grates against your being. And that's not even counting all the times when we actually do really hurt one another, when we do cause each other pain. Those things happen too. Sometimes it's on purpose, sometimes it's not. But all of that mixed in together, it makes it really hard for us to all come together and get along. Humans just have a natural way of fighting. And so as we started this teaching series on unity last week, um, we looked at a bunch of verses just to kind of help us see that Unity within the family of believers is really, really important to God. That he wants us to be a united people. That we are not honoring him if we are fighting all the time, bickering all the time, picking sides, whispering behind the scenes to try to get things done to or undermine what somebody else is doing. That stuff is just not honoring to him. When we live in a peaceful, loving relationship with one another, working out our disagreements in kindness and respect, those things are honoring to him. And then we looked at John chapter 17, where Jesus prays that his church throughout history would receive the supernatural gift of unity, that God would bless his people with a supernatural ability to be united in the face of all the obstacles that we have to not be united at all. So if you missed last week, I would really encourage you to take a half an hour or so sometime this week and listen to it because it does set the stage for what this series is all about. Now today, I want us to look at a passage on unity from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So if you want to get a Bible out, go ahead and do that. Um, if you don't own a Bible, want that black one in front of you, that's yours. You can take it home. You don't feel like you're stealing from us or anything. It might have some doodles in it from a kid in crayon. That's just the price of it being free, I guess. Um, but that's yours. If you want to follow along on your phone Bible, that's fine too. But in the book of Ephesians, it's not, we call it a book, it's not really a book, it's a letter written by a church planter and pastor from the first century named Paul. Paul had a real encounter with the risen Jesus that changed his life, and he was called to share the gospel all over the ancient Roman Empire. And Paul went all over the place planting churches, and then he would move on to plant another church, and he would write letters back to the churches that he had planted to give them extra instruction, guidance, teaching. Uh, sometimes I think there's plenty of evidence to assume that they wrote letters to him, too, asking questions. And some of the letters we have in, in the New Testament, you can kind of tell that he's kind of going through a list of questions, answering for them. If you've ever read any of those letters and, like, he just switched topics, like, out of nowhere, that might be evidence of that. And so he's writing to a church in a Roman city called Ephesus and to do, uh, give them some extra instruction. And judging from what Paul is writing about, we can kind of assume there was some conflict going on in the church. And the conflict existed between two major groups that we hear a lot about in the New Testament. The Jews and the Gentiles. Now, if you are not a Bible person, 
you're like, okay, great. That, what is that? Is it Hatfield McCoys? Like, what is that? It might not mean anything to you at all. Um, Jews is pretty straightforward. Those are people who are part of the nation of Israel. They were born into the Israelite family that descended through the line of Abraham as the story told in the Old Testament scriptures. That is all, uh, that is all a story about uh, the Israelites, how God promised that they would be his special people, that he would work through them to change the world. Uh, they, um, he gave them a, a law code that they would follow so that they would be his people, separate from the world and honoring him. Um, they believed God worked through them for centuries and that um, they were kind of this special group that was different than everybody else. And um, the way they looked differently was by following that law code, which affected every area of life from their calendar to their diet to their work week. It absolutely touched on everything. So their lifestyle was drastically different than anybody else that they encountered. Now, a Gentile was anybody that wasn't Jewish. It was actually um, nobody called themselves a Gentile. It was just the, it was the word that Jewish people used to talk about non-Jewish people. And the reason Paul uses it is because he was born and raised Jewish. So that's how he was taught to, to talk to people or refer to people who weren't Jewish. And so as we get into Ephesians 2, you'll see that he is talking to Gentiles because Ephesus Probably, most of the church was probably Gentile Christians with a few Jewish Christians mixed in. And um, they would have had, again, a radically different upbringing and lifestyle than the Jewish people. And there's a lot of evidence that these two groups didn't always get along. I'm sure some did. You know how um, anytime somebody tells you this is how it is and it's kind of a black and white thing, that it's really a spectrum? Uh, you know, some people. So some Jews and Gentiles, I'm sure, got along great. Some hated each other, but most of it was kind of in the middle, with this certain hovering level of hostility that just kind of always existed. But from the Jewish perspective, Gentiles were people who were outside the promise of God. They were outsiders. They didn't belong in here. They didn't live according to God's rules. They were people who were unclean, unholy. They they didn't belong in God's family. And there's a, a lot of evidence um, to show that um, the Jews looked, over time, they began to look at their relationship with God as outlined through Scripture. They began to look at that as making them superior or better than the Gentile world. Because one, God has favored us, he's not favored you. And secondly, we have all these laws, we keep them very well, we do these things that God says make us holy, you don't do any of them, you're all horrible, we're great. Now, again, that wasn't how all Jewish people were, but that had kind of seeped into certain aspects of Jewish life. Um, since Israel believed that God's law made them holy, they saw it disgusting as the Israelites didn't do those things. They would be horrified by some of the things they did. Just one example of how something that was just everyday life to them would have made them look at, at Gentiles as disgusting for doing something that was everyday life for them. Um, Jewish law said they could not eat pigs. I don't know why God would do that to anybody. Pigs are like the most delicious animal that you could eat. Maybe it was a sacrifice that they had to make to follow God. I don't know what it was, but God told them not to eat pigs. Gentile people ate pigs all the time because they're delicious. And so, uh, but the Jewish people were horrified. Why would you eat such an unclean, disgusting animal? To help us understand maybe the, the, the sentiment, imagine that you go over to someone's house and you're like, something smells good. What's on your grill? And they lift up the lid and there's a possum cooking on there. 
You'd be like, oh my goodness, what sort of monster would eat a possum? Like that's how the Jewish people looked at Gentile people just for having bacon. Like they just didn't, they just saw their life as wrong, disgusting at certain times, especially in this point in history. Now on the flip side, the Gentiles uh, saw the Jews uh, as weird, at times arrogant, and oftentimes even foolish. They thought, those dumb Jewish people, what is their problem? Uh, for one thing, the Jewish people, they took one day off a week from work. The Gentiles were like, why are you, are you guys lazy? Why would you give up a day of work? You're supposed to get up and provide for your family. you got to go out and work and make your day's wage so that you can get food, and you've got to you know, get out. Why do you need a day off? Like, what's wrong with you people? They also um, found circumcision, which the Jews were very proud of and something that every Jewish family did to the male babies in their, in their family. The Gentiles found that revolting. They did not think that that was okay. Why would you do something like that to such a sensitive area on, on a tiny little baby? What is wrong with you? In fact, if you've ever taken an art history class, you've seen plenty of statues that show you that the Greek and Roman world did not believe in the practice of circumcision. But the Jewish people were so proud of it. It was their defining trait as being one of the people of God. He goes on, uh, or he goes on, and, and the fact that they just thought, they, they looked at the Jewish people and thought, you guys are way out there, you're super incredibly weird, and on top of that, you're the weirdos, and you are always walking around acting like you're better than us. And so they just didn't get along, these two groups. And so Paul is going to talk specifically to their situation about why these now Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are getting put into, be, into one church and why they have to live as one church family and get along and be united, even though they have every reason to not get along, every reason to separate and, and walk away. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, remember he's a Jewish guy, that's why he uses this word, you, gen, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the first thing Paul does is he highlights the division in a way that you, none of us even notice when we read it. He goes, you guys were called, you Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's saying, Jews made fun of you. Like, oh, there's those uncircumcision people. We're the circumcision people. We're the good people. They're the bad people. I mean, I don't even know if we have a, quite an equivalent in our world. I mean, I remember growing up and like everybody was hardcore like Ford or Chevy. Like this was really before like Dodge trucks came on, but it was like Ford or Chevy. And Chevy people thought Ford people were stupid, and Ford people thought Chevy people were stupid. And now it's like, who cares? Like, why is that a thing? Like, they're all probably bad, right? I mean, at some point, in some way, shape, or form. But, that's, but he starts off by kind of highlighting, like, they used to make fun of you. They called you, the, like, they made fun of you. You're on the, you were outsiders. The Jewish people called you that. He's like, but remember, at that time, you really were separated from Christ, alienated, strangers. Notice all of that outsider language that Paul says. He says, there was something separating you two together, or two, separating you two from each other. And what Paul is kind of highlighting here when he's saying that you were far from God, 
He's not just insulting them. He's trying to kind of um, set up a little bit of a before and after. Okay, he's saying, remember what you were before Christ. Remember what your life was like before Jesus, so that they might come and uh, when he, you know, they look at the after side, what Jesus has done for them, they would have an increased appreciation for what he has done for them. And so then he goes on with the after part. But now, you were a stranger, you were an alien, for, a foreigner, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you were far away, but now you're close because Jesus willingly gave his life for you as well. In verse 14, for he himself, meaning Jesus, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us, okay, notice the language changed, it was you Gentiles, you were far away, and now you got brought near, and now Paul's saying, us, Jews and Gentiles alike, for he is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. And so now the shift takes place where he's talking about everybody. We have all been put on the same page. Jews and Gentiles alike, they got put on the same. And he says that Jesus is our peace, meaning that Jesus erased the sinful criminal records so that they could have a right relationship with God, but also Jesus makes peace between different groups of people who might not otherwise have any reason to get along. And so Paul is saying Jesus is our peace between us and God and also between all of us together. And he's saying that God or Jesus has taken these two groups of people who have very little in common, who have a lot of bad history, bad blood, bad feelings, a lot of animosity that's built up, and he takes these two groups and he wants to make peace with them so that they can be one people. And it says he does this by getting rid of the law. And what Jesus, a better way to say that, instead of, I think it says abolishing the law. Um, yeah, abolishing the laws. A better way, to, I think, to say that would be nullifying, meaning he did away with the, the need that people have to keep the law. There is no reason for the Jewish people to keep the law anymore. Um, the law had become a thing, though, at this point in time, that had made the Jewish people see the Gentiles as unholy, and had made the Gentiles see the Jewish people as weirdos. It had become, it didn't start out this way, but it had become this wall that stood between them, this dividing wall, this thing that separated Jews from Gentiles. And, and Jesus got rid of the law by removing their need to keep it. And he did that by perfectly living up and following the law, something which no Jewish person had ever done. And Jesus, having a perfect life, went to the cross. He stood before God as perfectly righteous and without sin. And then on the cross, he traded places with all of us sinners so that he would take on our sin and pay for it on the cross and we would receive his righteousness, having perfectly lived up to the law in our place since we could not. And so now that means that people no longer live up to the law. They go to Jesus who lived up to the law in our place. That's what, I mean when, uh, that's what it means when it says he nullified it. He took it away. He didn't get rid of it. He fulfilled it. He lived it. He followed it. And he put everyone on the same page, Jewish and Gentile alike. And so now the way to be saved for all people is through Jesus. 
He takes these two groups of people who hated each other, who had nothing in common, and he gives them the most important thing in common, their eternal destination. He changed everything, and he did it with a purpose. Verse 15, the second half of verse 15. He says, he did all that. Jesus removed the dividing wall. He wants to make you peaceful, that he might create in himself one new man, not man as in one man standing in front of you, but like one mankind, one race. He wants so that he might make you one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, if you read that and didn't notice anything, I wouldn't blame you, but um, there's something really cool in here, okay? So we want to take two groups of people and make them one race. That's incredibly neat, and it makes me think, man, the Bible's so cool. Um, but he wants to make it so that there's this Jewish-Gentile distinction doesn't exist anymore. Um, and what's so cool about it is that there's this language that picks up on a theme that runs through the whole of the Bible. Okay, in the Garden of Eden, go all the way back to Genesis, right? The story begins, humanity, Adam and Eve together in peace. It says things like they were naked and without shame, meaning they had nothing to hide from each other. There was no hostility, no anger, no jealousy, no rage, no hatred, none of that stuff, right? Then sin enters the world, and humanity all of a sudden doesn't get along with God, and they start getting, don't get along with each other. Because as soon as sin enters the world, the first murder takes place in the next chapter. So things fall apart between humans. And the, the point of Scripture you see over and over again is God wanting to restore and redeem all of creation to bring people back together into a right relationship with him, but also into a right relationship with each other. So when it says that Jesus is our peace and he wants to bring us together, this is him restoring us back to that one people that we were meant to be, the people that live as he intended us to live. It is Jesus recreating humanity to be a people of peace without any hostility or hatred. And so what that means is that our unity is a preview of eternity. Because in eternity, we're going to be fine. All the things that divide us, that's going to be gone. We're not going to care about that stuff anymore. We're going to be filled with love for each other, care for each other. We're going to look at the differences not as an opportunity to separate, but as an opportunity to learn and grow. And so when we do that now... We're giving people a hint of what the world is going to be like when Jesus returns and restores everything and we live forever on a restored, redeemed earth. It's an amazing preview. Our unity is a preview. It's a trailer. It's a sneak peek of what life will be like. It's a, our unity, in a sense, becomes a sermon to the world saying, this is really what God wants. Not, not everybody hating everybody, which is what you see anywhere you look right now. But he wanted us to be a people of peace. And so it becomes a preview of eternity. Now, all of that was a lot of history and a lot of theology. Let's talk about why this matters. Okay? So when we are in unity, we become a living example of what eternity will be like. But now there's all these things that want to separate us. And we're not Jewish, and we're not, we're, we're, we're not Jewish. We are Gentiles. We, we are the product of the gospel going out into those dirty, awful heathens that the Jewish people didn't seem to like. Maybe you didn't know you were a Gentile. I probably, you probably are. Um, but um, we have other things that divide us now. Think about generational differences, how they divide us. 
isn't it funny how every generation, the, new, the younger generation comes along and the ju- older generation is like, oh, those younger people, they don't know nothing. They're all lazy and bums. You know what's funny is you can go back to old newspaper clippings and those of you who are the older generation now saying the younger generation is foolish and dumb and lazy, back in old newspapers from the 1800s, they were saying the same things about us, about the coming generations. It's always been going on for decades and decades and decades and generations after generations. There's all these reasons we don't like each other. Older people see younger people as lazy zombies addicted to their phones. Younger people see older people as out of touch and afraid of the modern world. It's always been that way, and it seems to be stuck with us. We have financial differences that divide us, okay? It's funny how even though we might be people who, can perfectly, who are perfectly capable of getting along, being in a certain financial bracket, we tend to associate with people in that certain financial bracket. We move to places where people live like us and have the same standard of living as us and make the same money as us and drive the same car as us, and we live around people that are like us. We gravitate towards that stuff. And the same is true of racial differences, political differences, and whatever other differences you can think of. We gravitate to be like around the people that are like us, and we separate from the people that are unlike us. And we live in this time where all forms of media, and this isn't like a ranting against cable news or anything, all forms of media take advantage of the fact that division is highly exploitable. That the thing that gets you to keep clicking, keep watching, uh, keep following is anger and fear. And they do that by saying, those people not like you, aren't they horrible? Look at what they're doing now. They're going to take over the world and ruin everything. They turn the other side into a boogeyman so that you will click and give them more money. That's how our world is working. And division has never been more popular of a business than it is in our modern world. But when we come before Jesus... Every dividing wall that stands between us becomes a small secondary issue. Because in Jesus, we are all on one even playing field. In Jesus, the dividing walls come down. Because in Jesus, every single person is nothing more than a sinner saved by grace. We stand before Jesus. No bragging rights. No ability to say, well, look what I've got right that they've got wrong. No, in Jesus, from God's perspective... All have sinned and fallen short of what God wanted for his people. We've all dropped the ball. We've all messed it up. And we all deserve eternity of punishment. We were all broken people, simply been rescued by the grace and mercy of our loving God. And we're now trying to figure out how to live a new life that walks away from sin and walks toward Jesus. All Christians put on the same level playing field when presented with Jesus. Now, the Jews and Gentiles were, um, again, they, they were told those weren't the defining traits of them anymore. They weren't Jews and Gentiles anymore. They were the new race, a new group of people, a new humanity restored and redeemed in peace through Jesus. And so in the same way, we are no longer, if you're a Christian, we are no longer primarily Republicans, Democrats, nerds, jocks, rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, brown, whatever. We are sinners saved by the grace and mercy of our amazing God. And we stand on an even playing field. And anything that keeps us sticking our tongues out at each other across the aisle, that kind of stuff, that, that goes away because we stand together. Jesus is our unity. The way Paul said it was, Jesus is our peace. Very literally, Jesus is the one who is our peace. He stands to make peace between us and God and between us and each other. He is what unites us. And now we are to live as one people. 
Because Jesus died to make us one people. He died to patch together all the fractured pieces of humanity that had broken and divided and fought in hostility and wars across the world. He died to bring us back to be a restored people. And so, as we learn to work out our differences and we learn to truly love people despite of those differences, we begin reflecting to people the coming kingdom of God. We become a beautiful preview of what eternity will be like. Because, again, where, else, where is anybody else going to see this? Where is anybody else? Where, name another place in this world where unity is talked about and valued. It's not. And the fact that we haven't talked about it shows that we've missed something amazing. And so that's why this has got to be something, because it is a message to the world that something different, something maybe even supernatural is happening here. And so we should live out of unity so that we can show people how everything will exist then. And that we can say, all those other differences, yeah, they they exist. Yeah, we have different perspectives. But thanks to Jesus, we are one. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the life and hope that we have in Jesus. We're grateful that this isn't a, a me thing, an I thing, but an us thing. That when you brought salvation into the world, it was not just to save us, but to save us together so that we would be one people, that we would have relationships, that we would care about one another, serve one another, and that we would become a reflection of your coming kingdom, that we would be a sliver of heaven in our current world. And I pray, Father, that we would take that calling seriously, that we would be a people who desire unity, And that we would look at all of the things that drive us crazy, all of the perspectives that other people have that we hate, and we would realize that we are just standing in the middle of a broken world, torn and marred and and disfigured by sin. And that when we come to you, when we come face to face with your Savior, when we stand before Jesus, we are all standing on a level playing field, broken sinners saved by grace. And I pray that we would not see our way as a way to brag or a way to win arguments or a way to be right around a bunch of people, but rather we would just say, no, we are saved by Jesus, and that is the most important thing that should ever define us. And so even though a church can be filled with Democrats, Republicans, tall people, short people, nerds, jocks, whatever, that we can still be one people who love each other and learn from each other and live as a united people who are constantly trying to learn how to be shaped into the image of Jesus. Thank you again for this beautiful, complicated family that we call the church. It's a beautiful thing, and we thank you for for its blessings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.